0: Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to come before you and to study your word. We ask your spirit to guide and lead as we look at your word and, and help us to see what you would want us to see from this section. In your son's precious name, amen. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 10. Starting at verse 1. At that time the Lord said unto me, "Hew you two tables of stone like unto the first, and come up unto me into the mountain, and make you an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words which are on the first tablets, which you broke, in which you shall put them in the ark. And I made an ark of shittim wood, and hewed two tablets of stone, like unto the first, and went up into the mountain, having the two tablets in my hands. And he wrote on the tables, according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord spoke unto you in the mount while in the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them unto me. And I turned myself and came down from the mount and put the tablets. Tables into the ark, which I had made, and and there they be, as the Lord commanded me. So we're going to look at this. We're continuing the history. Remember, this is Moses's, basically last words to the people before they're going to go into the promised land. They've been wandering for forty, forty, forty-one years if you count the year in, uh, in Sinai, and he says. And after he, remember we, we, last week we covered that God, he came down off the, off the uh, mountain, he saw the people in their orgies, and he broke the table, the, the Ten Commandments, and, and punished the people, and then the Lord sent him back up, and it says, you know, carve out two tables of stone, like unto the first, and come up unto me, and make you an ark of wood, and I will write on the ta- tables the words which were on the first tables which you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So here we get the repeating of the Ten Commandments. He's given the story. This is now the second time in Deuteronomy that he has mentioned the Ten Commandments. So as he's going, as he's going through the history, he goes back and forth quite a bit uh, because in chapter 5 he goes over how the Lord gave him the Ten Commandments, and now he's going back over their history and explaining how they how received the Ten Commandments. And then he put them in the ark, and I, and I love verse 3, and it says, I made the ark of Shittim wood. Now, if you remember in Exodus, Moses did not make these things. He had the two men that were called to, to make these things, but it was he, he was the leader, and as most leaders end up speaking, it's always the leaders who end up doing things, even though it's not necessarily them. And he makes this ark, this big chest of, of uh, Shittim wood or acacia wood, and remember we talked about acacia wood Back in the past, acacia wood is a very hard wood that is, grows in that area. It starts out red, and the older it gets, the more it moves to a black color. And so this is a very hard wood. And then they covered the, covered the wood with gold, as we've talked about back in Exodus. And he put the two tables of the Ten Commandments in the ark. And who remembers what else is in the, in the ark? The pot of the manna. The um, Ark of the Covenant. uh, um. One other thing is in the Ark: the rod of Aaron's that budded during the during the challenge of the that the people made on who should lead us. And those three things were in the Ark. And then the Ark was covered with the mercy seat, or we also know that it's called the seat of propitiation which propitiation simply means that the anger is satisfied so God's anger is satisfied towards towards sin on the ark of at the at the mercy seat. So trying to review these things as we go through these first five books so to remember. And he says he put these two into there like he did and he wrote on the tables according to the first writing so that he is God. God wrote on the Ten Commandments on the on the stone, and kind of be interesting to see what God's handwriting looks like. <laughs> uh, you know, has to be better than mine. Nobody can read mine, so. <laughs> so, <laughs> but God wrote on there the Ten Commandments, and and He says which the Lord spoke to you out of the mountain. And remember, before Moses went up on Mount Sinai. They put the fence around Sinai, no no animal or human was to go up there or they were going to die. And the thunders and the lightning and the the fire was on the mountain and the voice out of out of heaven this was it so bad, so loud and, and mighty that the people were scared and they basically told Moses, We'll just stay down here in our tents, you go, you go talk to God. We don't we don't wanna talk, you know, we don't wanna hear him. And we've talked about that many times, how how many times do we not want to hear God in our in our life. You know, there's often times when we just, we're not in the right frame of mind, we're we're sinning, we're not repentant, and God starts speaking to us and we'll do just about anything to keep God from not speaking to us, including not read our Bible, not come to church, and say, well, God, I'm just, I don't wanna hear your voice, so I'm not gonna go anywhere where, I, where I'll hear you speaking. The only problem with it is that is he usually finds a way to speak to us anyway. And, uh so it's better just to turn to him and say, God, I'm ready to hear you speak. As Moses, went up, as Moses went up on the mountain to listen to God speak. And if you remember, the people, even before they heard what God said, they go, we'll obey everything that he tells us to do. And that didn't last even long enough for him to get down off the mountain the first time and didn't last much longer than that after the second time. Uh, the people of Israel, as Moses is going to go in the end of this chapter and said, they're a rebellious people. And, but we are rebellious people too. How many times do we rebel against God and say, God, I just I want to do things my way. Uh, God, I, I want to do it my way. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you want. I want to do it my way. And then we end up suffering because of trying to do things our way. And then it says, and I turned myself down from the mountain and put the uh, uh, tablets in the ark which I, had, which I had made and as the Lord commanded me. So... We see this trip. He went up in the mountain. We're going to learn later that he was up there again for 40 days and 40 nights. Only this time the people behaved themselves when, they came, when he came down. They weren't worshiping a golden calf and having an orgy and all the other stuff that they were doing on the first, the first trip back. And, so, and in verse 6 it says, And the children of Israel took their journey from Be'eroth of the children of Jehachin to Moserah where Aaron died, and there he was buried, and Eliezer his son ministered in the priest's office in his stead. And from thence they journeyed unto Gudgogda, and from Gudgogda to Jotbath and the land of rivers of water. So here we're just starting a list of the places they went. And if you remember when we studied Numbers 33, I spent the entire day reading all those crazy names because it was a whole long list of every stop they made for the entire 40 years. He's not doing the same thing here, but these names are in that list in Numbers 33. He's just kind of hitting the highlights. We left, we left Sinai. We went here. We went here. Aaron died and was buried. Okay. And then he goes we, and, and they continued. Verse 8 says, at the time, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister unto him and to bless his name Unto this day, wherefore Levi has no part in nor inheritance with his brethren. The Lord is in his inheritance according to the Lord your God promised him. All right, so we're here. Again, this is one of these events that happened before all the other trips here. But remember, God took the Levites. And do you remember why he took the Levites? was because the firstborn child belonged to God. And God said, instead of taking the firstborn child, I'll take the entire tribe of Levi, and if you remember, the the difference was like 120 people, and they and they had to give money to redeem the 120 people that were not redeemed by the Levites. And then he took and he divided the Levites up between those that would be the priestly tribe, which was the tri, was the family of Aaron, and then there were the three other tribes, and they were divided up between who carried the the Ark of the Covenant and the and the and the um, menorah and the table of showbread and and those and another group carried all the rest of the materials and then another group had the job of carrying all the tent and boards and if you remember we talked about how they had wagons given to them and the, and the tribe that had to carry all the ark and the and those things did not get any wagons because what they had to do was carry their material they were not to put the Ark of the Covenant or the menorah or any of that stuff on uh, anything but the poles on their shoulders. And then the next group got one or two, one wagon because they just had a few things that could go on. And then the ones that carried all the tenting, they got wagons. I think it was four wagons, if I recover, recall, and they were able to carry most of their stuff on wagons. And remember, they had all the big plywood boards that made the walls and, and everything that they had to carry. And Didn't they try putting the Ark of the Covenant on a wagon and it started to fall off and the guy touched it? and he When, I was just going to mention that, when David brought the Ark of the Covenant from uh, the tabernacle into Jerusalem, they put it on a wagon and, the, and uh, the man, as the wagon hit a spot, it looked like it was going to fall, he went to touch it and he was struck dead and David was afraid to bring it any further and he left it right there in that field where it was at and that man got blessed until David was ready to say, okay, let's do this the right way and they brought it in, carried the way it was supposed to be. Uh, again, this is how many times if people try to do things the way God says not to do them, they will be judgment. And this is the problem that we've, we've talked about this. You know, How many times do we try to do things our own way? This world is trying to do things its own way. Many churches are trying to do things its own way. God says, don't be unequally yoked. And then people, Christians, will get married to a non-Christian and then wonder why they became, got drug away from the church. And it's like, well, God told you not to do it in the first place. Why did you even think it was okay? And we see this compromising of, that's going on in this day and age where people, churches, are not calling things sin that God calls sin. And this is very important for us to stand. When God says it's a sin, it's a sin. Okay, It's, between that, it's that person's problem between them and God, but still they're gonna, they need to know that God says it's a sin. He doesn't say it's okay. And this goes into a lot of things that we do in this world. You know, We've got so many people living together outside the bonds of matrimony. God calls that fornication, and it is a sin. And yet we've got churches that won't call it a sin, because they were afraid somebody will be mad at them. Uh, We have that issue with homosexuality in a lot of churches where it's not being called a sin because they were afraid of being called names and being attacked if they call it a sin. Adultery is a sin. All these things that God says are sins, we need to be able to say, this is a sin. And when we don't obey God's ruling on it, we make compromises. God will bring judgment just as he did in David when he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant in on a wagon. You know, and he should have known better. He knew God fairly well, but he obviously didn't know that the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be moved on on these staves on the shoulders of the of the Levites. But uh, And that would have been because it hadn't moved. <laughs> Once he went into the Promised Land, it hadn't moved for years, and David was bringing it into, the, into Jerusalem. He was going to build the temple and, and move the tabernacle to Jerusalem. And so he wanted it, wanted God's presence in his, his capital city. And instead of looking and finding out the right way to do it, just went out and tried to do it. And uh, it cost a man his life on it and cost David great fear. And so, again, we need to be careful when God says something. You know, We want to be careful because we live in a time of grace where God is very gracious to us and all of that, but there's still those things where God says, you need to be obedient to me. His grace is not just a license to sin. It's an opportunity to be able to come into His presence. And it's not that we're bound under the law. We're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. As we're reading the scriptures, God's going to show us what we are to do and what we aren't to do and how we're to keep it. There are certain things that are very clear that they're sin. And there are some things that aren't so clear that they're sin. And God will work those into our life and say, And we all have areas in our life where we look at the principles of Scripture and say, I can't do this because God said so in these verses. It's not a thou shalt not, but we look at it and say, he very clearly said, don't do it. And we come to that place where we realize, okay, God, I can't do that. God did that to me a while back with with a particular president that I really didn't like that I wasn't praying for, and I was bad-mouthing, and God says, are you praying for him? I go, no, then he goes, be quiet! You're talking about my lead, the person I put in place. I still think the guy was a terrible president, but that's beside the point. And it's not Obama; it's not our current one, you know. But uh, but it was a lesson that I learned, and I had to learn it by God coming in and saying, uh, "Look at these. Look at these verses." And we need to be careful how we look to honor God and not make compromises in our life. If we know that something is a sin and we're absolutely sure that it's a sin, then we should not be doing it under any stretch of the imagination. And this is something that we find oftentimes people making these little compromises. And sometimes these compromises happen because they're filling their mind with the world's way of thinking. They've watched so much television, so many movies, that all of a sudden they don't understand what God says about things and they end up doing what the TV and the movies say is okay. You know, if you watch any movie, having, having an adulterous affair or fornication has no consequences. All the movies and TV say so, right? There's never a consequence for, for doing these things. God has a consequence for it. You know, God has a consequence for it, and he says it's wrong. And we fill our minds with the ideas of the world, and it will hurt in the long run. We will pay the consequences for this disobedience. And he... And here it is, and in verse 10 he says, And I stayed in the mountain the mountain according to the first time forty days and forty nights, and the Lord hearkened unto me at that time also, and, that the, and the Lord would not destroy you. And the Lord said unto me, Arise, take your journey before the people that they may go and possess the land which I swore unto, the, unto their fathers to give them. So if you remember when Moses would back up the mountain, God was so angry with the people, he told Moses, I'm going to destroy them all and just start all over with you. And Moses went into a long prayer, God, no, you can't do that. And if you remember, why did he tell God he couldn't destroy the people? He goes, your reputation is at stake. If you kill all the people, then the people around here will say that you didn't have the, you had the power to take them out of Egypt, but you didn't have the power to bring them into the promised land, as you said. And he and his prayer was to God, was God, you can't do this. Your name will be compromised if you do this. And this is something oftentimes we need to do when we pray, is God, have grace. Your name, your reputation is at stake in all of this. And this is why Moses interceded with the people. Uh, all through the scriptures, we're going to see Joshua interceding for his people. We're going to see David interceding for his people. Oh, we see these... Intercessions all the time, all the way through. We see Jesus doing it. We see, we see Paul saying, "God, if I, if if my going to hell would send let all the rest of my my people go to heaven, I would gladly go to hell for them." God knew that would be the answer Moses would say. I'm sure God knew that that was the mo- answer Moses would Mark say. Didn't think of that of himself, he had to put on his yeah. heart to say that. Yeah. That's some quick thinking. Well, that's a pretty heavy duty thing, you know. Thinking, God, you know, your reputation will be at stake if we if you kill everybody. God, it isn't right. I know that these people are stiff-necked. I know that they're, they're wicked. I know that they were doing all this crazy stuff, and they've been nothing but complainers every time we go along. You know, and it's always been amazing. You know, they watched all the plagues hit Egypt. They saw Egypt destroyed by God, and as soon as they leave Egypt, they start griping and complaining. They hadn't even crossed the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's chasing them, and they go, oh, there wasn't enough graves in Egypt, so you brought us out here so we would die. They just get through the Red Sea and they're having a great time praising God and having a great, wonderful time. They go another 24 hours into the wilderness and they're starting to complain that they're thirsty. God gives them water. And every time they turn around, they gripe and they complain. How many times do we do the same thing, though? And we've talked many times about this. God blesses me and the next day, two days later, I don't feel blessed and I start griping. God, how come you're not giving me anything? This is why we need to keep those... Record straight our and and put our markers in place to say God has done this for me So that when we are tempted and we will be to say God I'm, I'm feeling like uh, you haven't done anything for me. We we really quickly go. What have you done for me lately? Uh, you know because we get to that point and we go you know God you haven't done anything and God's saying well What about this? What about this? What about this? And we need those markers in our life saying oh yes God you've done lots of things And I've shared before, we look at Abraham's life, and Abraham looks like, we read it in Genesis, and it looks like it's so exciting. This happens, and then this happens, and this happens, and this happens. But when you really look at it, there's, he's told to leave Ur of Chaldees, and he waits for over 10 years in Haran before he moves on. Then he moves into the Promised Land, and there's sometimes as much as 10 and 20 years in between each time that he meets with God, Where all he's doing is operating on the last thing that God told him and did for him. He was very faithful. Noah was told 120 years is left for man and go build a boat. And that's really the last thing we're told that God tells him. Now, I don't know that God totally didn't talk to him. But we know the only according to scriptures, he talked to him and 120 years later, he said, Okay, here's your animals, get in the boat. All right. That's a long time to go in between conversations with God. We live in such a fast society that we don't really draft that. Mm -hmm. I have a film back there. You know, we live in a day and age of films where the story has to be told in two hours. Mm -hmm. You don't dare go over the two-hour mark. Yeah, well, they do sometimes. Yeah, that's just that's a general rule. Right. But this is the case that everybody goes into. We look in, and I've mentioned this in the book of Acts. The book of Acts covers 60 years in, in just uh, 20-some chapters. And we read it, and it's like, wow, didn't they live exciting lives? And then we read that Paul spent six years in this place, and we had two, two, one or two episodes at it. And he went to another place and spent five, six years, and then we have one or two episodes out of that. You know, and we need to keep in mind that when we read the Bible, these people had the same lives we have. Exciting things happen to them in God and then they go a period of time where nothing seems to be happening and then something exciting will happen. And we need to be aware of this. God moves on his schedule. And his schedule seems slow compared to us even though to him it's probably very, very fast because he's looking at all of of history at one time. So when he deals with just 100 years or even 200 years, it's just a snap of the fingers to him. It's like, oh, we just did something yesterday for you. Here's another thing. You know, here, here's another thing. Here's another thing. Uh, and from God's perspective, He's moving very quickly. From our perspective, it's like, uh, God, you're, you're not doing much. And yet, if we really look at everything He does in our life, and we really start counting our blessings, you know, I love it when people say, well, I got up this morning, and it's not the negative, you know. I, I managed to live another day, but God's get blessed me to get up another day and, and minister on this world. Or cursed me that I'm not home, whichever way you want to look at it. Because uh, you know, I agree with Paul. As long as there's something for me to do on this world, I want to be here doing what he, what he wants me to do. But as soon as it's done, I want to go home. I want to be where God is. But as long as I can be teaching people and helping people grow, I want to be here helping people grow, just as Paul said. It's better for me to be in heaven, but it's more expedient for me to be here with you. And so as long as there's that need here that I can fill, I want to be here. But as soon as that's not there, I want to be going home and watching what God is doing. And it says, you know, he spent 40 days up there and, and he prayed with God and he wrestled with God and that's fully given in Exodus where he back, back and forth with God. And the Lord said, Arise, take your journey before you, that you may go and possess the land that I swear unto your fathers. They left Sinai. And remember, they spent a little over a year at Sinai, making the tabernacle and learning the Ten Commandments and learning the commandments of God and learning about the feasts. And then he took them. And in a very short time, they were in Kedeth-Bernia, where they sent the spies in and the spies came back and said, it's a wonderful land, but... That word, but, was was the problem for them. You know, there's giants in the land, and we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. And we talked a long time about that. Never make an assumption about how you're seen by somebody else. The ten spies made that assumption we're so small we we think we look like grasshoppers in their eyes so they obviously think that we look like grasshoppers in their eyes and you know most of the time when I've done any kind of counseling or conflict resolution resolution what I have found is the person who's having the biggest problem has put motive into the other person's words and I've heard it so many times well they said this but they meant (laughs) well how do you know they didn't mean what they said well it was uh, I just thought that's what they meant uh, or I just know them or I heard it in their voice. And, you know, when, as soon as we start doing that, we're going to have a hard time forgiving people because we put something in their, into, their, into them that may or may not be there. And if, if we put it in there and it wasn't there, then, you know, they, saw, they said something innocent. We, we assigned some real terrible meanings to it. They don't even know they have something to apologize to us because they didn't have anything to apologize. They don't know that I added all this extra stuff to their what they said, and and now I'm mad at them for what they didn't say, you know. Uh, and and we see this over and over again. And Moses was here with them. He says, "You're going to take your journey to go to the land that God promised." This is so important, even in today's world with the Middle East, God promised Israel their land and has returned them to their land. And now we've got all these people, all these nations trying to say, well, you need to give back the land that God gave you because it'll make peace. The only problem is it won't make peace. They don't want them there at all. And the really bad part is most of the land they have bought, even though it was given to them, they paid for most of the land that they're living in because of all the issues that went forth out there. They said, well, the heck with it. It's taking people, the government's too long. We'll just buy it. And when they bought it, it was swampland. And the, and the Arabs sold it to them at very high prices, and they were rubbing their hands together thinking, well, we really took, took those uh, crazy Jews for, uh, to the cleaners, and then they were able to improve the land, and now it's the best land in the area. And so now they want their land back. The land that they sold, they want back because it's uh... verse 12. Now Israel, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your might, to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes, which I command you th- this day for good. Behold the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord your God's, and the earth also with all that, the, that therein is. Only the Lord had a delight in your fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all people to this day. So we'll look at this. What does the Lord require? Now this is something that's important. This, this is a verse that's not just to Israel. What does God require of us? And in this case he goes, the Lord requires you, but to fear the Lord your God, and this fear literally means to be reverent, to be filled with awe. It's that idea, it's, it's not so much that I'm trembling and scared to death, it's the idea of, for most of us, if we were be, to be called to go meet the president or, or the king or queen of some land, you know, we would go in there with, who am I to be able to come in front of this person? Okay, this person is so special. might even be something if you were to go to the governor, now, most of us will never ever meet the governor in person and, and go talk to him. You now, we're not going to be invited to the governor's house and say, hey, why don't you just come and spend the afternoon with me and we'll just, we'll just talk. But, you know, you get the, this is the, pif- the picture that we have when God says to fear him. We have the right to come into his presence. Because of Jesus Christ, we come into the very presence of God, and yet we also know that we don't deserve the right to come before the God of the universe that kind of a fear that kind of a reverence that says i'm going to be i'm going to behave i'm not i, I you know if you again if you went to the governor's mansion you were not going to be running around his house and pulling things off the wall and knocking the books off the tables you know you'd probably be sitting there like okay what do i do how do i behave i'm not going to i'm not going to make it you know i don't know what to do so i'm just going to sit here very calm and and that's the thing that god's looking for is this whole idea of reverent fear and then to walk in his ways. How do we know his ways? He's given us the book. The book that tells us what his ways are. And he says walk in them. Are we gonna walk in them perfectly? And No, nope, we're not gonna walk in them perfectly but we are to to the best of our abilities do what he asks us to do. When he says to go share the gospel he means go share the gospel. When he says teach, he means to teach. When he tells fathers to train up their children, he means that fathers are to train up their children. When he tells husbands to, to love their wives, he wants them to love their wives. And so he says, walk in your ways and love him. Love God. And we've talked oftentimes about this. True, honest, real love is a choice. It is not emotional. It is not feelings. It is when we look at God's love, agape love in the Greek, unconditional love, it is an objective love. We choose to love him just as he chooses to love us. No emotion in it. There can be points of emotion at time when we love God. But you know, when I wake up in the morning and I don't feel like God loves me and I don't feel that I love God, I need to know that my feelings are lying to me, then God does love me. God chose to love me, and he's never going to unchoose to love me. And if I have truly chosen to love him, it doesn't matter how I feel about it. Okay? I have chosen to love him. Unless I choose not to love him, I am loving him, in spite of whether I feel like I do or, or not. And it's the same thing in a marriage. What holds a marriage together is that agape, unconditional, chosen, objective love. So that when you get past those feelings and the feelings ebb away after about three to five years and you don't feel like you're in love anymore, you say, oh, I chose to love this person. And you go on for another three to five years and you find out that your feelings are back. And the problem that we have in our day and age is the first time those feelings disappear, people run to the divorce court and say, "Well, I don't love this person where we have unreconcilable differences. And you'll hear them say, I never loved them. And that is probably true. They never loved them because they didn't choose to love them. They just had infatuation for that person. And God says we're to love him. Love by choice. I choose to love God. I choose to come to him. I choose to trust him. And if I choose him, then it would be my act of will to not love him and not follow him. And so this is what he says. We're to fear him. We're to walk in his ways. We're to love him. And we're to serve the Lord your God. Serve. And this word for serve literally has the implication of its work, its labor. And God expects service from his people. He called the disciples, and what did he call? He said, follow me. And some of them he said, I will make you fishers of men, but others he just said, follow me. And he wanted them to get up and follow him and he does the same thing to us at times he says do this and how hard is it sometimes to do what God wants us to do especially if it makes no sense to us logically we look at it and say "God, uh, you want me to do what you want me to say what you want me to go where <laughs> uh, God there's no businesses there there's no work there there's no there's no homes there I don't have any family there why should I go why should I go there and God says that's where I want you Abraham was called out of the Ur of Chaldees at a time when people didn't leave their families. Okay, you've got to remember in, his, in their day, the extended family was the norm. To walk away from your family usually meant that you were a pariah in your family. You didn't, you didn't belong to your family. They didn't like you. You were the black sheep and they were trying to get rid of you. They were happy to see you go. And we don't have that indication that that's what was going on with Abraham when he left. God told him to leave and he left. And we don't really realize what a big deal that was in our day of nuclear nuclear families and families living across the world from each other and, and all the stuff that we do with our families. But in that day, it was a huge deal. It was a huge deal for him to be told to leave and to do it. And when they went and got Isaac's wife and called her to leave her family, her town, her country, to go meet somebody that the only thing that she knew about him was at least that the servant carried a bunch of bunch of treasure with him and said that he was the guy that they were going to go to was rich. For all she knew, that treasure could have been all the treasure that the guy owned, period. At least he had several donkeys, uh, uh, camels. <laughs> so that kind of led her to believe that there was some wealth involved. But you know, she'd been sent away from her family, and she chose to do that. And Again, the whole idea, something very unusual being done. And God has said, sometimes he asks us to do things that make no sense. Take steps of faith. Step out in faith and say, am I going to trust God? If you think about this, when Peter gets up in the boat in the storm, seeing Jesus walking on the water and says, Lord, if that's you, ask me, you know, bid me to come. Can you imagine the faith it took to make that first step onto the water? This was a fisherman. He knew what happened when you dropped things into the water or or tried to step into the water because when he got out of the boat and stepped out of the water, he went went down to the beach to drag the boat out. Okay? But Jesus said, come. And he walked on the water until he started paying attention to the storm. took his eyes off Jesus. God oftentimes will ask us to do things that seem strange. We're studying the book of Ezekiel on Tuesday. Ezekiel has been asked to do a lot of strange things if you read the book of Ezekiel. Yeah, you know, he gets to lay on his side for, for six months. Then God says, lay on your other side for six months. <laughs> you now, uh, I couldn't lay on my side for six months. I wouldn't be able to do it. Uh, but, you know, he was told to do some very strange things to be able to picture, give the picture of God and his judgment. Hosea the prophet was told to marry a prostitute. And I can imagine that conversation with mom and dad. Hey, mom and dad, God told me to marry a prostitute. Uh, what's a good Jewish boy like you marrying a prostitute? Uh, what 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 uh, what drugs were you on this morning when you thought when you thought you heard do- uh, God? Now you know that's what his parents were saying. You know something along that nature, along those lines. You know you're you're marrying what? <laughs> and he says God told me to do this, and I could just hear that conversation with his parents. You know you get Mary, the mother of Jesus, being told that she's going to be the the mother of the Messiah. Try explaining that to your parents. (laughs) Try explaining it to your fiance. And of course, everybody around her is thinking that her and their fiance are playing around before they were supposed to. So, you know, God sometimes will put us in very difficult places as we walk in his ways and serve him. And the thing is, he's never promised us it would be easy. And if we thought it would be easy, look look at the individuals in the scriptures. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego didn't bow down to the idol and, and, and Nebuchadnezzar says, well, can your God protect you? And I love their answer. Our God is able to, but whether he does or doesn't, we will not bow. They were ready to die for God if that's what it took. And we see God here saying, what do what, what I require of you? That you're going to fear me, walk with me, love me, serve me, In other words, give him our all. Give everything we are to him. And that's what he says. Serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. Everything that is our innermost being. That's what the heart's talking about. Our innermost being. And the soul is the seat of appetite. The seat of our actions. And he's saying, I want everything. I want all your innermost parts handed over to me. Most of us don't follow God that way at least not all the time. Most of us might have experiences at times of following Him with all our heart and with all our soul for short periods of time. But we look at these people and what they gave up to follow God sometimes. And it's kind of an interesting, wor- interesting world that God says, I want you to do. I want you to do. I want you to talk to this person. And you're going, God, not that person. They're everything that I don't want to have anything to do with. Now, uh, God, they—they they look like a, a homeless bum. That it looks like they haven't sh- shaved or showered in three months. And you want me to go talk to them? They stink. I can smell them all the way over here. And God's saying, go over there and talk to them. Now, God, uh, you want me to go talk to that biker that just got off that bike? It looks like he could tear me, tear me in half with one, with one finger. <laughs> and God's saying, yeah, I want you to go talk to him. Uh, God, you—you you want me to talk to this rich guy? You know, they won't talk to me. God says talk to him." We never know. Whatever it might be that God says to do and and you say, and we look at it and say, God, it just doesn't make any sense. And God says, it's what I want you to do. Serve me with all your heart, with all your mind. Verse 13, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I have commanded you to this day for your good. God's commandments, God's instructions to us are always for good are good Romans 828 says all things work together for for good for those that are called according to the purpose of God and how many times do we walk in things and it doesn't look like there's any way that something could be good and we talked about it Ken, Ken brought it up last uh, you know two, two Sundays ago you know we went to this meeting and our car broke down and you know it's like how can that be used for good how can it be used for good well everybody's worrying about how are you getting home you're you're four hours away from home, how are you getting home? I don't know, God's got it under control. God's got it under control. Somebody comes home and their house is burnt down and it says God's got it under control. You go to your work and the work has been shuttered up and boarded down and you don't have a job anymore. God is under control, he knows what he's doing. My God has, owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the hills that they're on and can meet my needs anytime he wants. He, he does things for us. And even when things happen to us and we're going, God, I just don't know how this could be for good. You know what? All we have to do is hold on to the promise that it is for good. It takes a lot to get to that state of mind. It takes truly believing in His Word yeah. completely. And you're right, it does take, it's a learning thing. You're not, you're not going to hear it one or two times and all of a sudden say, okay, I can, I can walk in that. But God also doesn't ask us to do the hard test until he's brought us through a, a series of smaller tests to get us prepared for that hard test. And the good news is he always gives us the grace to go through whatever it is he wants us to go through. And it's all part of our growth. And it really is. It's part of our growth as we learn to walk with him, as we learn to trust him. And a lot of it is learning to trust Him. God, You've taken away everything. I don't really know what's going on, but I'm going to trust You. And that takes time. I've had I've had the benefit of practicing it for 45 years. It's easier now than it used to be. It's still not easy sometimes when you look at it and say, "Well, I just don't understand this, God." I I'd saved up all this money and now You just took it all away in one in one broken <laughs> broken thing. And you go, God. Okay, it's we're gonna figure out what it is you want and you just walk and you do things and you serve God and you know we've shared many times where you know sometimes God will make somebody in a lot of pains and continue serving him so others will be motivated to to walk with God through their pain and God says see it really wasn't for you but it was for them it was for good and God says that all of my statutes, all of my commands, everything I give you is for your good. If nothing else, we're going to have rewards in heaven for anything that we suffer here. And Paul says, I've learned to be thankful in much and in little. And you look at his life, and there were times when he seemed to be pretty well off and making ten, serving in a good church, you know, being paid probably by the church as well for teaching. And then when he had nothing, shipwrecked, arrested, <laughs> beaten, thrown into jail. <laughs> and he still was able to say, even in those times, I give you thanks. The Philippian jailer, you know, in, in Philippi, they've been beat and, they're in, and they've been thrown into the jail and the, and the dungeon and they're singing praise to God at midnight. And we're not talking about nice, clean area of jail. We're talking about infection-ridden, you know, rats and insects and straw and, and cold or hot, depending on what it is, and usually damp. You know, and they're praising God in the midst of that. And it kind of makes us wonder, you know, what would we do in the same situation? Would we truly be ready to, to worship God in spite of anything going on? What does it take to keep us from coming to church? What does it take to keep us from going to a Bible study? Oh, I got a hangnail, it's really sore, I can barely, I can't put my shoe on, I can't go to church. I've got a cold or I got a, I got a, I got a headache, whatever it might be. And some of those are legitimate reasons not to come to church, but, you know, but the point I'm making is what can keep us away from church? I've heard lots of people, well, I've got, I've got guests here this week, I can't come to church. Well, everybody that comes to my house knows that I'm a Christian and knows that I go to church. So if they're going to come and stay at my house, guess what? They're going to church. Or they can go do whatever they want while I'm at church. That was the way my dad raised us. you You want to come visit our house? Fine. But we go to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You're not staying at the house because I won't let the kids stay at the house, so you will go to church or you will go do whatever you want during that period of time, but you're not staying here. But the people knew this was the situation. This is what was going to happen. What can keep us away from church? For big football fans, sometimes it's the Super Bowl. Can't go to church tonight, it's the only night of the week that the Super Bowl's on. It's not like the the World Series where I get seven chances to watch it. This is the only day it's gonna be on. Who's your God? Is it God or is it the Super Bowl? And we need to be able to make those decisions and say what can keep us away from church and look at it and say is it a valid reason for not going to church? And then uh, let's see where we we. Verse 14: Behold, the heaven of heavens is the Lord; the heaven and the heavens of heavens is the Lord, their God, and the earth also, and all that is in that in it. And basically, this is saying God owns everything. And this is why we as Christians need to look at ourselves as stewards of what God has given us to take care of. And and by steward, that means we take care of it. Does it mean that we can't use any of it on ourselves? Absolutely not. It, Especially in our day and age, you need a car, but, and you need some a roof over your head, and you need to pay the utilities. But it also doesn't—it means don't live at 200% of what you're making, because that's probably not correct stewardship. And I would even say it is not correct stewardship. And so, but it says God owns everything. Only the Lord had delight in your fathers to love them. And I love this. Why did God choose them? Because he decided to. He loved them. He had a great affection toward Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it was because he promised them that they're going to enter into the promised land. And this is what he says on here. God has delight in your fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all the people as of all this day. God's telling, Moses is telling him, God chose you. And he probably was ready to put in, and I don't understand why he chose you, because you've been so so terrible, and it's kind of what he goes into the next one, but he goes, God chose you. Do you realize God chose us, and we really don't deserve anything? We don't deserve to be used by God. We don't deserve to be in his presence. It's all by his grace. We don't deserve it, and when God uses us, we need to look at God and say, thank you. God, I am so unworthy. I really don't like it when I hear people say, well, look what I'm doing. I'm so special, God just has to use me. Well, I don't think God needs to use you if you think it's all you. And we see this a lot of time with, with praise teams that you know, they get up there, you know, look at me, I'm a really good musician. I'm a really good singer. I'm a really good preacher, some pastors will go. And if it wasn't for me, God just wouldn't be able to do anything in this church. You know, and that's a scary place when you get somebody thinking that way that they are everything because God needs to be happy that they're with them. And instead of, God is using me. I love it when you listen to what Billy Graham will say at times, you know, he doesn't understand why God uses him the way he does. And other great pastors out there will say the same thing. It's just, I'm a sinner, I don't deserve to be here, and God is still using me. And that's the wonderful place God will use anybody. And oftentimes in a church, he will use the, the person that is least likely to be used and use them to, to teach, to serve him, to be an example. And God says, I want to show you. I want to show you how I do things. First thing, uh, 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty God, a terrible and a terror. Terrible and regards not persons nor takes reward. And this idea, circumcise your heart. He because they had the circumcision of the of the foreskin of the and God says that was the sign for them to serve, but he goes, I want more than that. He goes, that, that was something your parents did for you. You were eight, eight, eight days old. You had nothing to do with that. He goes, I want your heart circumcised. I want a tender, soft heart that is ready to respond. Paul talks about this in Romans 2, 25-29, he goes, Jews are not Jews just because of the circumcision, but because of the circumcision of their heart. Gentiles become servants of God because we accept Jesus Christ and he circumcises our heart and makes it soft and tender, whereas Jeremiah says he takes the heart of stone out of us and puts a heart of flesh into us that will listen to God's laws and respond to God's laws. And when somebody gets saved, they get this desire. And it's amazing to watch. When somebody gets saved, they have the desire to get into God's Word. They have a desire to be with God's people. And if there is not a desire to be in God's Word and with God's people, I have to wonder if somebody truly has gotten to know God. Are you really saved? Are you in a relationship with God if you do not have a desire to spend time in His book and His Word with His body? With his people to be edified, to be built up, to worship, and I can't say they're not saved, but it, I have been bothered by it, and I will always be bothered by it. And I will pray for people's salvation who can stay away from church, because he, the church is where we get to minister. It is where we get to have our rough edges knocked over, off as we as we bump up against people who irritate us and bug us, and and tra- challenge our, challenge our love, challenge our Challenge our patience, you know, that just are hard to get along with. And God says, part of the body, get used to them. And we need to get used to them because we're going to spend eternity with them. So we might as well get used to them now because it's going to take time. But he says, "He's your Lord, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, or master of masters, Lord of lords. Do we treat him as our Lord? How often do we not treat him as our Lord this would be a stronger question. He says, do something. We go, absolutely not. And he says, hold it. I thought I was the Lord. I'm, I'm the master. And he expects obedience from his servants just as any other master would. And he says, I'm the Lord of Lords. I'm the greatest. He says, I'm the great God, a mighty and terrible, and regards not persons. He's not, he doesn't lift up people and he doesn't take bribes. You can't bribe God, you can't give God enough of money, enough service to make him decide that you're done enough good. It just doesn't work. The only thing that makes us acceptable to him is by accepting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and becoming a follower of Jesus. That's the only thing that makes us successful. You can't be a billionaire and give him a billion dollars and say, okay, I'm good with God, I gave him all that I have. He's going to say, so what? I own everything anyway, so that this gift didn't mean anything. You can't bribe somebody who's, who owns everything. Because you know, are giving them what they, own, what they own already. Here, let me give your stuff back to you and, and bribe you. It uh, doesn't work very well. And it says, He does execute the judgment of, of the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger and gives him food and raiment. God protects. He protects the, the orphans. He protects the widows. He protects the strangers. He doesn't always do it in the time that we think He should, but He will move in His time. He always protects. He always protects His children. Now, He may let us be martyred and then go back and get those people, but they will always pay the price for it. And God's goal is always to bring people to Himself. And we talked about that in the Revelation class. The whole purpose of Revelation was for God to bring people to Him. It's not to punish. God is never looking to just punish. Because if that's your purpose on it, then you're not really punishing. You're just abusing. And this is the same thing we see in families. If If they're punishing just for the sake of punishing and being mean to their children, they're no longer punishing. They're abusing their children. Punishment always has the goal of bringing about righteousness, bringing about a change in life, not just I'm bigger than you are, I'm meaner than you are, I'm going to make your life miserable. And there are, unfortunately, parents out there doing that kind of stuff. God is not like that. He is out there when he punishes, he's doing it to bring people to him and to effect a change of lifestyle. It says, love you, therefore, strangers, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God and you shall serve and you shall cleave and swear by his name. Why does he say you were to take care of the strangers? In their case, it says you were strangers. How many times do people give up something and they get healed from something of God and they despise people who still walk in that sin? You know, a lot of times alcoholics and cigarettes, ex-cigarette smokers are the hardest on those who are trying to give up. You know, how can you how can you not have given that up? You know, they don't there's no love, there's no, I gave it up, you should be giving it up. And God's saying, You were strangers, you were, you were slaves, love people if for no other reason because you were there. You've been there. Love them, help them. It says you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him which we've already talked about serving. And then it says, and you shall cleave, be joined together. This is the same word that it talked about when Adam and Eve were were joined together. And God says the husband will leave his mother and father and the two shall be one. They shall be cleaved together. They shall be glued, joined together completely as one. The relationship that God wants with us is that same oneness. We're glued together with him and cannot be broken apart. And he says, be that close to him. That is so important for us. We, we serve him. We, we just cling to him and cleave to him and glue ourselves to him. And this is why it's so important. As we start walking with God in a very strong manner, we will be tied to him. I can't wait to get to church. And it's not just because I'm the pastor. I've been this way for all my life. I just can't wait to get to be with God's people, to hear the lesson, to, to share with people what God has shared with me and to talk with people and be built up and to build others up. I can't wait to get into His Word and study. I can't wait to be just worshiping with Him because I am to a, at a place where I have glued myself to God and say, God, we're not separating from each other. I did it one time and I'm not going to do it again. It wasn't worth it. I want to be so tied with him that no matter what happens, I am going to honor him. If it means I go to prison for it or I die for it, I'm going to honor him because I am glued to him that tightly. He is my praise. He is my God and has done for you these great and terrible things which you have seen with your eyes. Your fathers went down into Egypt with 70 people, and now the Lord your God has made thee as the stars of the heavens. And this is what he's saying. God has done miraculous things in your sight. Miraculous things. And he says, He is your praise. (laughs) He is your God. And we judge them, but we do the same thing, unfortunately. We will keep walking away from God. We don't pretty much have never seen what they saw with the miracles. I can't imagine having manna on the ground every single morning for food and being able to gripe that God's not feeding me. And yet they did. Uh, Water from the rocks and then complaining that they're thirsty and that God just can't give them water. Ours are more, we have to really pay attention to the blessings that we have. Theirs was right in their face and they failed. But we need to be careful because we can do the same thing. And the thing I've mentioned many times is we've got to be very careful to not start treating our blessings as if they're normal because they are blessings. And the minute we start counting them as normal, then we start thinking that God isn't, isn't blessing us. God, I get up every morning, so what? <laughs> God, I have a job that, is, that I've had for a long time, so what? God, you, you're, you're meeting all my bills, so what? You keep doing it every day. You've done it for, for four or five years. You know, We got to be careful about that attitude. Because we got to really understand it is God's blessing. And the moment we stop thinking of it as God's blessing, He might just stop the blessings for a while and say, okay, you don't want to give me my blessings for what I, you know, give me credit for the blessings I'm giving them. Let me just take them away for a while and watch what happens in life when the blessings are pulled away. And then He goes on to the the greatest blessing that they were to see. Jacob went to Egypt with 70 people and came out with somewhere around three and a half million people. Now, that's a blessing. In just over 200 years, they were moved from 70 people to over three and a half million. And God fulfilled the blessing that he had promised Abraham. Your descendants shall be as numerous as the stars and the sand. And that was only the start of their size. (laughs) Three and a half million was just the start. And Moses is already saying, look, you know, we cover the entire, wherever you look, we cover everything. You know, we, we, are, we are full, we are, we are blessed by God. God's told our fathers he was going to do this and he has done it. This is what we need to keep in mind and, and mark off in our life. God gives us promises, he gives us blessings, we need to mark them down and say, God, these are the promises, this is the blessing. Here's the blessing you've done for me. and We keep remembering that it is a blessing. And we can keep our mind focused on him. And then we can be like a Joshua or a Caleb. And the spies went into the land and they're going, there are giants in this land, but we are more than able with God to take them. And the rest of the spies said, no, we're not. We can't take them. We're just, we're just tiny grasshoppers. They can step on us and kill us. And I love Caleb in the book of Joshua. Toward the end of his life, he tells Joshua, I want that mountain over there. It's got the hardest, it's the hardest one to take. I want to see what God will do with me at 120 years old. I want that mountain. (laughs) And they took the hard one. We need to be like that. God, I want the challenges that you want me to take. God, I'm ready to walk in faith in any challenge you give me and step out. We don't know what we believe until we actually step out because otherwise it's just academic. God, I really believe that you can do this. Well, okay, go ahead and do it. Uh Oh, God, I'm not gonna do that. That's too scary. Uh, I had a friend tell me that in his physics class one time, they they have a pendulum and the professor would have two students stand on the pendulum right where the pendulum would, would smack them upside the head on its return trip. And there's a rule in science that the pendulum will always go less distance on its swing back. And very few of the students would stand there as the pendulum came toward their head because they just, there was one thing to believe that the, 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 it was true that the pendulum wouldn't go any further, but it was another thing to actually put it on record and say, I'm going to stand here while this pendulum <laughs> comes within the quarter inch of my head because that's where it started. And uh, this is where God's at with us. This is what we say we believe. Are we ready to walk out in faith and trust that God is true? How many times do we not do that? And I include myself in that. There's many times when I don't step out in faith and do what I say that God can do. And this is our challenge for us. Are we ready to step out? Are we ready to put feet on what we say we believe? Are we ready to say, God has said it, I'm going to go do it? And this is where everything becomes important. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your challenge to us to serve you and to obey you and to go forward. We ask that you always help us to count our blessings and see what you've done for us and go forward with you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.